In January of this last year, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Liberty Commission connected with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, wrote a, a fascinating article called You Can't Have Ethics Without Stories. And, and the basic argument of his article, the, the observation he makes, is that too many Christians and too many churches make a mistake when they remove the way of living, the instructions of the Bible, from the story of the Bible. Uh, that too many of us are tempted in our, our Twitter-happy and soundbite world to try to boil the gospel down into some random list of bullet points or formula or, or abstract principles. And when we do that, we miss something essential about faith, that there is a story beneath the ways in which we try to live. There's a story beneath our ethic as Christians. You can't have ethics without stories. And I think that's an important point for us to remember as we journey through this belief campaign. That as we journey through this belief campaign, it's important for us to never disconnect our beliefs from the story of Scripture. In fact, I love the front cover of our Believe Bibles that we handed out back on Easter Sunday because I think the front cover serves as a helpful reminder of this point. Because in big capital letters, we see the word believe. And if we glance too quickly at the front cover of this Bible, we, we may be tempted to believe that this campaign and this whole series that we're moving through as a church is simply about handing out a few beliefs here and some beliefs there. And so we come together each week and we get another point or another belief and then we move right along. And so it's important for us to pay attention to what's said right below those big capital letters of believe. It says, living the story of God to become like Jesus. And that one sentence is critical. In fact, I think even the way that it's placed on the cover is telling. That no matter what belief we claim, no matter what ethic we claim, we have to have right below it a story of God giving shape to how we live, giving shape to what we believe. And specifically, we have to stay close to the story of Scripture, the story of God as seen in the person of Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one whom we're trying to become like in every aspect of our life. Because you can't have a Jesus ethic without a Jesus story. You can't have ethics without stories. You can't have a belief campaign. You can't have beliefs without a story of God holding it up, giving shape and informing those beliefs, informing those ethics that we hold to, that way of living and being in the world. And I think Moore is right, and I think his, po his point is especially important for our belief today. As we talk about biblical community. Because when we talk about community, we have to stay close to the story of Scripture. Otherwise, we can end up with a pretty vague and ambiguous definition of what community means. We can't forget our story of community. From the very beginning of Scripture, what do we read? Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, and in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. From the very beginning of the story, we are given this picture of a God who exists in community, who creates out of that community, and creates us in that communal image. So deep in our divine DNA is this 
created capacity to connect. We want to connect. We're designed to be in relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, with the world around us. It's who we're created to be. And even when the story goes off track, even when there's a rupture in the plot line, in Genesis 3, I think it's significant that the consequences of sin are described relationally, how all of our relationships are changed with God, with each other, with the world because of the rupture in the story. But even though there's a rupture, God still seeks restoration. God still seeks redemption. And the thing that we can never forget is that God's restoration and God's redemption is always community-shaped. That God calls out Israel to be a distinctive kind of community in the world for the nations. That Israel was always created to be in proper relationship with God, with each other, for the sake of the world. In fact, if you track the plot line of the Old Testament, the Old Testament basically tells the story of Israel struggling to be this faithful community. It tells the story of their ups and their downs and the ultimate tragedy of them not being able to be the community that God had called them to be. A reflection of what was lost in Eden. And so when Jesus comes along, one of the best lenses through which to view Jesus is this communal lens. That Jesus comes to show us who we were always created to be. Men and women in right relationship with God, with ourselves with each other, and with the world. Jesus calls together a a diverse group of men and women to follow him. This community of disciples that's formed around the purposes and person of Jesus. And I think it's significant that when Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples and we read about what he says in John, The majority of what Jesus says is relational instruction. He's giving them instructions on how to live in right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with the world. It runs throughout Scripture, and then we get into Acts. And we see see there, and we read there, not just stories of individual conversion, but also communal conversion. I love the passage that Matt read for us this morning because I think Acts 2 is this great picture of our story because we know Acts 2.38, it's a very well-known passage and, and we have this moment of repentance and baptism and forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Nearly 3,000 were added to the number that day. But then, in the very next scene, what do we see? We see a community converted. We see a community, a church, in right relationship with God, with right relationship with each other, and right relationship with the world. They are being the people that God has always intended us to be. This properly relationship community. And if you keep following the plot line of the New Testament, what you'll see is is that the majority of the New Testament is the story of the people of God, the church, this kingdom community, learning what it means to live in relationship with God and with each other and with the world. They're trying to be this in Christ community 
that is this glimpse of the future. The calling is, is for the church to be a reflection of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth where all relationships will be made right once and for all. This is this big story of community that runs from Genesis to Revelation. This is this big story of community that when we talk about biblical community, we have to stay close to that story that we read about in Scripture. Otherwise, we'll end up with definitions of community that are vague and generic and abstract and will completely miss what it means to live in biblical community, that, that, that we could easily be sold on some counterfeit definitions of community. About two weeks ago, I was on Twitter, and the picture behind me popped up on my feed, and it caught my attention. But then it really caught my attention when I noticed what the person tweeted next to the picture. They said, it's possible to find a church that stands for everything you think it should stand for and does everything that you think it ought to do. A church of one. And so for some of us, we we might giggle at this picture and at this comment because it, it kind of calls out something that I think we all have fallen victim to from time to time. That from time to time, we all think that we know that if this church or this community of faith would just do what we did, then things would be great. We all kind of have that impulse, and it calls that out in a lighthearted way. But I also think it's a funny image because we know that this picture tells the wrong story. It tells the wrong story because a church of one is no church at all. A community that is ultimately shaped around my wants, and my needs, and my desires, and my preferences is ultimately not a biblical community because biblical community always calls us to consider the interests of others. Biblical community never lets one person be a community, but it's always calling us to be in relationship with other people. So for a lot of us, this is this definition of community, this counterfeit definition of community that that all of us from time to time can and do struggle with. Uh, There's another counterfeit definition of community that came on my radar by author Brene Brown. In her most recent book called Braving the Wilderness, she talks about a kind of community that now exists in our world that I think is one of the most tempting kinds of community that we experience today, but I also think it's one of the most toxic. She writes this. She calls it common enemy intimacy. Don't say that ten times fast. Common enemy intimacy is counterfeit connection, she writes, and the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share with others is simply that we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is often intense immediately gratifying and an easy way to discharge outrage and pain. It is not, however, fuel for real connection. She's calling out a kind of community that's very tempting in the world in which we live, where we are forming communities simply around hatred. And community that is formed around the axis of hatred is not 
biblical community. It's tempting, it's lucrative, but ultimately it is, hear me clear, a sin. Because biblical community always operates on the axis of love that we see in Jesus Christ. And for some of us, Maybe that first counterfeit definition of community doesn't tempt us. Maybe the second one doesn't tempt us. But, but for some of us, there, there's still a third definition of counterfeit community that I think exists that we can sometimes buy into. But it's not biblical community. On, Jan, on July 20th of this month, Christianity Today wrote this fascinating article releasing some research that had recently been done by the National Institute of Children's Health. And what they found in a recent study is that children who struggle with chronic conditions such as autism, ADHD, ADD, depression, other things like that, are less likely to attend religious assemblies. And the article goes on to explain that there's a lot of reasons for that, But based on previous research, one of the key reasons why a lot of those individuals and families impacted by those chronic conditions are because of the experience that they have at church. The churches very often are not prepared, not trained. People can be patronizing and make things more uncomfortable for those families who are struggling with these real chronic conditions with their children. And so the article goes on to describe how churches can do better at welcoming all kinds of people, people who are different than they're used to. And at the end of the article, it closes with this fascinating quote. It says, it starts with churches planning and preparing, but it ends with churches making a theological and ethical commitment to welcome those children and to even honor their gifts as an offering to the church. Pay attention to that. It takes a theological and ethical commitment. It takes a commitment to a certain kind of story of God and a commitment to a certain kind of behavior growing out of that story of God that will then give shape to a particular kind of community who will welcome people who may be different, who may make us uncomfortable at times. Because when we shape our community in ways that are just to leave me cozy and comfortable, that's not biblical community. Because biblical community will always stretch us beyond our comfort. Biblical community will always push us out of our comfort zones. Our needs and wants and preferences and comfort may be an entry point, but they are never the final destination of biblical community. There are these counterfeit definitions in our world of what community means. Definitions that say it's ultimately about my wants and my desires and my preferences. Definitions that say real community is community that's formed around hate. Definitions that say my comfort and my coziness are the litmus test of what kind of community I experience, but none of those are biblical community because none of those stay true to the story that we see in Scripture. This story that gives us a picture of community that says, look to the interests of others. This story that says the community of God operates and revolves around the axis 
of love that we see in Christ Jesus. This definition that says, when I enter into community that's faithful to the story of God, I will be stretched. This is the kind of community that we're called to give to each other and to the world. And the way I want to close the sermon this morning is to not pay attention to just the kinds of community that I think that we should give if we're going to be faithful people of God. But I also want to close this morning by talking about something that I think some of us also may struggle with, but the different angle of community, a different side of community. And that is, for a lot of us, the issue isn't about the community that we give, but it's ultimately about the community that we receive. Back in May, Van and Janet Cluck were teaching our GPS class. And they were talking about community and relationships and the value that that is. And as a part of that class, they interviewed their daughter, Elizabeth, to share some of her story and experience of community she had her senior year of high school. And as she spoke, it really convicted and compelled me. And I went up to her right after class and I said, would you be willing to share that with a few more people? By a few more people, I meant 900 more people. And she said, sure. So we talked over the last couple of weeks, and I want to invite Elizabeth up this morning because I want you to hear from her about the experience that she had four years ago, her senior year of high school, and not just what happened to her, but also what God taught her about community. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hello. Just me and my friends. Um, so, so tell us, you're a senior at Lipscomb. Yes. And... What we're talking about is something that happened to you your senior year at Friendship. So tell us a little bit about what happened your senior year. Okay. Um, So it happened in November. It was the Tuesday right before Thanksgiving. Um, Me and my family were about ready to go um, on a mission trip to Sneedville. Um, And we were going to pass out um, Thanksgiving meals to some of the people there. And um, there was a lot of apprehension, a lot of anxiety, um, because... My mom um, was in the middle of getting tests done, Um, and that's just a scary moment, um, kind of that feeling of the unknown, um, not being sure what's happening, what's going on, and um, I can remember just a really, a lot of anxiety um, as we were traveling up to Sneedville. Um, When we got there, we pulled into the Hardee's parking lot, which if you've been to Sneedville, that's like one of the only restaurants there and it's one of the only places with cell phone service and my mom got a call um, and she and my dad jumped out of the car and ran to um, like each other and started talking on the phone and um, in that moment I knew um, it wasn't good news and she got back in the car and uh, said "Um, I have cancer and those are three of the scariest words you can ever hear someone say to you and It's also three words that kind of just send your whole world into a tailspin. Um, I never thought my senior year that uh, those would be, that would be part of um, our story and a part of um, just the story that was happening that year. Um, And I struggled a lot with anger, um, with not being sure what to do, not being sure what to say. And that night I remember sitting with two of my friends in in our minivan and just crying because I was so broken and I was so unsure of what the Lord was doing and what God was um, 
I mean, it was just a scary moment. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we've all been there. Um, and we don't know what God is doing. And that is definitely where I was um, that week. And thankfully, the story didn't end there. There was a, a series of things that happened beyond that moment and some experiences of community that were really significant for you. And there was uh, one moment that you described in particular in class a couple months back that really struck me and convicted me. Um, and you talked about this lesson that God taught you through that moment. Um, so tell us what happened in that particular moment. Uh, and also a little bit about what God taught you about community in that moment. Um, so Tuesday was when we found out, and um, we finished our mission trip. And then on Sunday, my mom was like, we're going to church, let's go. And I was, that was one of those times where, I'll just be honest, I did not want to go to church. <laughs> I, was, I was upset, I was angry, I just didn't want to be there. But they were like, we're going. And so I got in the car, um, and we went to second service, and we got to the part of second service um, where you can pray with the elders. Um, and so our family was like, we're going. And I was like kind of dragging my feet. I really didn't want to be there. And um, we prayed, and I was just sitting at the back of the gym, and I was just in tears, just so angry and upset. And um, my mom looks at me, and she takes my face into her hands, and she looks me straight in the eyes and says, Elizabeth, don't miss the gift of community that the Lord is about to provide our family. And I didn't really take it to heart right then because I was still mad. But over the next few months, I began to see she was right because I saw um, people that didn't even, I didn't even know knew about um, my mom's condition. I saw them at the hospital with us um, asking me if I was doing okay. Um, probably a month after um, she had her surgery, um, people were still bringing us food and bringing us dinner. And I got to see what it looks like um, when we really do have biblical community, when we choose to love each other. And for me, um, I didn't want people to know that I wasn't okay. Um, I didn't want people to know that I was angry, and that I was broken. Um, but it means the world when, when people are like me, um, when they don't, when they look like they don't want community, when people still continue to reach out, that, that's what biblical community is. It's when we choose to reach out to those um, who, who do want to belong um, and, and choosing to do that no matter what, no matter what um, the face may say, no matter if you say you're fine. Um, that, that was such a gift for me, um, choosing to not miss the community that you all provided for me. It, it changed my life. Thank you, Elizabeth. Let's give her a round of applause. <clears throat> do not miss the gift of community that the Lord is about to give you. That one sentence has just been rattling around in my head and in my heart over the last two months. Because it's so easy to give community. And I think all of those counterfeit definitions that we talked about earlier should, should challenge the kind of community we give. But community is not just something we give. Community is also something we receive. And when we get to that place, then we're experiencing biblical community. Give and take. Give and receive. This 
back and forth that we experience as the people of God. Connected by love, looking out for the interest of others, stretching ourselves, not only so that we can be a blessing, but also so that we can receive a blessing. So this morning, my, my encouragement, my challenge, my word is to be open to biblical community. Be open to community with each other. Be open to community with God. Be open to community with yourself so that we can be a community for the sake of the world.